When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape, Doug Maurice, Ellis Williams, and Scott Pasco. This is part two of the podcast that was originally one podcast. Go back and listen to the last podcast that was all about key Browns offensive plays against the Chiefs. We were going to make the second part of that podcast, and Ellis said, Doug, what are we doing? This is taking forever. And I said, I'm sorry. It's what I do. So we broke it up into two podcasts. It was a good move by Ellis. This is now going to be just as deep of a dive on the key defensive plays for the Browns against the Kansas City Chiefs. So you heard from Scott a lot in the last one. Ellis is going to drive this one. Ellis Williams, dive in. i got to watch the tape. All right. So we're going, as Doug said, a deep dive into really – Two plays, which are extremely related, because we're going to start back to front. We're going to start with the fourth and one play that, of course, has broken Browns fans' hearts. I don't know who has been able to rewatch it and where everyone's at at with this, but we're going to get into it. Then we're going to get into the play before that, the Chad Henney run. And then we're going to end on a good note. We're going to bring you back to the first half and go to a drive where the Browns defense made plays that I think are telling about the future of that unit and specifically Joe Woods. But first we got to start with the, the, the play that's just been difficult for everyone to swallow. And for these, these plays I've named each play here, I've given them a headline of sorts. So this first one, the fourth and one play I've called chiefs toying with the mannerisms of late game football. Not quite as catchy as Philly special, but, but we'll go with it. We'll, we'll, go, with we'll it. go with it. We'll go with it. What I really loved about this playoff, aside from the design of itself, is how the Chiefs got to this point and what the play looked like, the optics of it. So let's set the scene. With 32 seconds left from the Cleveland 47, the Browns faced a fourth and one after Henny picked up 13 yards on a scramble, and we'll get to that later. I just want to walk listeners through and relive for most of you, what Tony Romo said as the playcock started at 30 seconds and went down to five with 30 seconds left. He said, send everyone you've got guts, meaning, you know, Andy Reed, don't go to the sideline, get up to the line and act like you're going to run the play at 28 seconds. He goes, draw them off sides, you know, alluding to the fact they're not going to snap this football 19 seconds. He goes, quote, take the time down, walk up, pretend you were taking it for a sneak, you know, so they started in gun. Now you try to get them to jump hot, hot, and then you walk up to the center and, you, you know, you do your little checks and now you're going to try and get him to jump again. Hut, hut. At nine seconds, Tony Romo says, there is no play. Look at the body language. And that is why I titled it the Chiefs toying with the mannerisms of late game football. I was in the box. I want to ask you guys, were you convinced there was no play? Did you think, what, where were you guys at where, when Tony Romo said with nine seconds on the play clock, there is no play. Look at the body language. Where were you guys at? I thought there might be a play. I, I thought uh, people have noted this. Tony, for as good as Tony is, was a little off late in the game here. I mean, I thought it kind of made sense to do it. And I was not, when they, sat, when they snapped it, I didn't gasp. 
Let's say that, right? I mean, and, and listen, and I, and I want to ask a very specific question about this sort of when we get near the end of this play. But yeah, a lot of, we've seen all this. We all hate the fake draw offside, you know, take the penalty draw timeout crap that we see in football all the time. But Scott, I don't know. I, I, I didn't, as, and I actually think as much as like Andy Reid is being labeled like a genius for this, I feel like that has gone a little bit too far because I thought it was smart and I guess unusual, but I think maybe it says more about how dumb and boring 90% of the coaches in the league are that they wouldn't ever do something like this when I thought it like made sense. Watching that play unfold, I thought for sure they were not going to snap it. Just again, because of the body language. I didn't, at the last second, you could see any kind of like, tighten up and they're like, Oh, they're going to snap it. But yeah, I totally thought that, that they were just going to try and get an offsides and then, or take a delay or whatever and, and kick it. Was the clock running? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So they could have taken delay. and kick. So, um, so there was that, but I do think it was totally the right call to go for it. You know, I've been railing on fourth and one in short going for it all season. So I think, I don't think that that was like a gutsy call or a, that was the appropriate call. And passing on fourth and one made total sense. And yeah, I mean, Patrick Mahomes or no Patrick Mahomes, that's that's a play that you should pick up. And it made all sense in the world. And it was magnified because of when it happened and, you know, the fact that it basically clinched the game. But yeah, he totally should have gone for it. It wasn't like a, a shock that, that Andy Reid decided to go for it there. I do think part of Ellis, and I don't want to shortchange what you're saying about the body language because it really is important. And they snapped it at five. As people have noted, they didn't run it down to one when then at one, maybe you tense up anyway as a defense because like, all right, well, either, but they did it while you were still like waiting for the last four seconds to run off. And to me, that's the beauty of the play, because, Scott, I'm with you. I was sitting up there and I was convinced there was going to be no snap. You know, at least you, they, you can take a timeout. They can come back. They can run this football and see what happens. I was convinced there'd be no snap. But then five seconds left on the play clock, like Doug said, Jim Nance goes, Oh, there is a play. Chad Henney takes the snap, boots right. Tyreek Hill, as the number three in the slot, takes one jab step left inside against MJ Stewart. The, the Browns, let's back up just slightly. The Browns are in man coverage across the board, which they've been doing on third and fourth down most of the season. Definitely in this game, especially in short yardage situations. They're in man coverage. They prove that by having the Chiefs having Daryl Williams out wide and then early in the play clock, he motioned back in, which just looked like, window dressing but actually was very important it gave chad henney the the guarantee that they were in man coverage that's mj stewart versus tyree kill and that is why again i'm in lockstep with scott here once the play happened i wasn't surprised how it unfolded for two reasons you have tyree kill man coverage against mj stewart first of all second of all the chiefs have run this play before on the postgame pod i said it was the denver Sunday night football game and a, a close win. I, I was a week uh, either early or late. I can't remember, but they actually did this against the dolphins in a same exact situation uh, right before the two minute warning fourth and one. They would Patrick Holmes in the game, of course, but they actually same exact play called dolphins man coverage across the board. Tyree kill actually goes out of bounds and learn from that because the dolphins ended up getting the ball back in that game and Tua ended up, you know, turning over on downs and didn't get a drive going, but had Tyreek Hill stayed in bounds, the Chiefs keep the ball and don't give the Dolphins another opportunity. So he learned from that and ran this play perfectly. And the route was brilliant. Again, one step inside. He actually comes back towards the line of scrimmage. He catches the ball right at the line of scrimmage, uh, guaranteeing a reception and then breaking up. So for me, 
it's a great play call that was amplified by the Chiefs messing with the tropes or, you know, the, the mannerisms of late game football by snapping with five seconds. You can tell when the ball snap, MJ Stewart reaches for Tyree kill and grabs a whole bunch of air because there's nothing there. I'm convinced that the Browns just, just slightly weren't ready. You're the, you, I'm not going to sit here and say that they took the playoff. That's a, not what happened at all, but just that slight hesitation. You, you, you take your hand off the trigger just a little bit and then you realize you got to shoot you're a second late and that's all it takes, especially against a team like the chiefs. You guys all say this. And I, this is a question I want to ask Joe Woods or had, you know, had, I had the opportunity or thought of it on Monday instead of Tuesday to ask Kevin Stefanski, I would have, but I'm curious, I'll propose it to you guys and you guys can act like this coaching staff. I'm confident that it hurts that this play was already on tape before and it beat the Browns because for a team that is so about their business and so about preparation and so about just knowing another team's tendencies and tips for this play to beat them when it had already been shown on tape to me goes against what this front office has built their play calling on. And that stuff happens. It's the defending champions. You're going to clinch up in tight moments, but for it to be a carbon copy of something that I guarantee they studied and showed their players this week, I would ask Joe Woods first of how disappointing is that? And secondly, why weren't you ready for it? So I'll say that you guys, are you guys following my logic and the fact that this is a carbon copy play and it still beat a team that supposedly is about their work and about their business. Cause from the outside as like a non NFL player. You're sort of like, well, listen, it, you have 35 seconds. Just be ready. It's, it's, it's a do or die play in the playoffs. Like why would you be, who cares what their body language is be locked in no matter what now human nature. I get it. But also why wasn't Joe Woods screaming from the sideline? They're running a play. They're running a play, right? That's what you're talking about, Ellis, that like we've seen them do this or that BJ Goodson or that Carl Joseph or a veteran Sheldon Richardson's yelling, they're running a play, right? That gives you the extra thing to tense up because you've seen it on film. That's what you're talking about, Ellis. And that to me, there's, that's a great question, Scott. Is that not a great question? Or maybe maybe somebody was yelling it and guys still didn't react to it? Yeah, I mean, who knows what people are thinking as that clock's winding down. You have to – they have to be taught to, number one, not jump, obviously, but they could snap the ball. <laughs> it has happened. You know, I watched this play, and it just really reminds me of that play to Higgins on the Browns' final drive. It's very similar in the route type uh, – and again, you can see the difference in speed there and how Tyree Kill catching the ball and getting around that edge gets on that first down. BJ Goodson also bit on that inside fake by Hill off the snap. And if they wanted Hardman was on the other side of that formation, if they wanted to kind of sneak him out over the over the middle, that would have been an, an easy first down too. Just kind of dump it over the lineman to Hardman. They had the options, but it's clear Hart, uh, Hill was number one. That's where speed really paid off. So two things I wanted I want to say here. One is back when and Scott has done it and I did it too in the middle of the year when you were running through Brown's fourth down plays, they ran a play like this to Odell early in the year. Yep. A very similar play where they used Odell's speed and it was a real easy pitch and catch on like fourth and two. Was that the goal line? At, was, and yeah, down in, by the goal line. Yeah, in yeah. Dallas, wasn't it? I think it might it was early in the year. Yeah. It was pretty early in the year. I don't think it scored a touchdown, but I think it was in the red zone. Now it converted yeah. a third and three. So we've seen them do this kind of thing. The other part of this, and, and I know, Ellis, I got very big on the Denzel Ward, Tyree Kill, and it's like, that's not really what this game's about. You do different things. They're in man here. 
Denzel Ward is on the other side of the field covering Byron Pringle. And in your man situation here, you have Carl Joseph on Travis Kelsey and MJ Stewart on Tyreek Hill. And your do a die play, great design, great execution, comes down to MJ Stewart on Tyreek Hill. And I get it, and I get, okay, maybe you don't have Denzel Ward follow Tyreek Hill all day. How about here? <laughs> how, about, how about this play? Hey, MJ Stewart, we'll take your chances on Byron Pringle. Like, am I nuts to say that? Because we saw, now listen, as it turned out, I was wrong multiple ways because the guy that Ward ended up covering all day was Kelsey. They locked up Ward on Kelsey one-on-one and tried to specifically, they had to go out of their way to get that matchup. They didn't go out of their way to get Ward on Hill. But in the end, not only is the play making somebody bite, the guy you're making bite is like your fifth best corner. And I get he had a bunch, he had a good he had a pick against the Steelers. I get it. He's still what he is. Is that a problem here, or is that just the way the formation goes? And you got to line up and trust all eleven guys. I would have loved the innovation of and really just breaking of norm to slide Denzel Ward over there just for that series to say nope, no matter where he'll goes, I'm we're taking him if we're in man. But the flip side of that is it doubles down on my notion of how disappointed I am in the coaching staff not tipping the players off on film recognition on play recognition, all the more reason when you have Denzel Ward as your boundary or excuse me, as your field corner and they put and pin three, there's all three of their players, their three best players pinned to the boundary. There's not a lot they can do. They're running sprint out again. They've showed it already the exact play versus the dolphins. And just as a, as a football philosophy or football rules in general, when you put your three best players to one side of the football field and you have, they're that condensed and tight to the boundary, you're probably running sprint out. There's only so much you can do there. And the only way that this play gets blown up and it would have gotten completely blown up had the Browns had film recognition here from their study is Carl Joseph would need to break off Travis Kelsey and beeline and just jackknife the play and blow up Tyreek Hill on the catch or before he, before the ball's even there, perhaps you get in front of it to pick six. Who knows? But my point is think about the, um, the Rams Seahawks game from the wild card round. They, they Seattle threw a quick screen to DK Metcalf and their undrafted rookie cornerback has a pick six from film recognition and just getting a jump on the football. That's what the Browns had in front of them on this play. And I got to start from the top down. It starts with coaching. There was just for some reason, not a signal made that, Hey, we recognize both this formation and what they're going to, they tend, they tend to do out of it and no one was tipped off from it. And the result is really a, a walk in first down and an easy, one of the biggest pitching catches in Kansas city's history, but one of the easiest completions of their season. I'm thinking about that play from earlier in the year that everybody went nuts over when Denzel Ward slid under the block yeah. and made a play. If you have Ward, not even on Hill, if you have Ward on Kelsey on this plate, like he's been much of the game, as you're just saying, Ellis, now you're not asking Carl Joseph to come off Kelsey and make a play. You're asking your best defensive back. And couldn't you see it's like, how did this get blown up? Because Denzel Ward, who's super fast, and because they had film study, recognized what was going on, and attacked and took out Tyree Kill's feet the moment he caught the ball, right? There are, as great of a play call it was, there is a possibility out in the world 
of the, the retaliatory great defensive play that they just didn't give themselves the chance to make. Doug, I, I love the, the, the game speak, the, the theory, because you're right with the game on the line. If we, if we, as much as we talk about offense on this podcast, the simple concepts in offense is put the ball in your best player's hands to win the game. Right. Well, on defense, put your best players around the football to have a better chance at success. And you're right. Isolating Denzel Ward, having him completely away from the play is exactly what Kansas city wanted to accomplish. And they did that. All right. Was, Go ahead, Scott. Was real quick. I was just rewatching the play while you guys were talking and, and Carl Joseph, he takes a step as soon as he sees the ball go, like he takes a step towards Hill and then he goes back to, to Kelsey. It was just really, really quick, but there was a moment there. I, he's not going to get there in time, but there was a moment there where he, he almost left and, and tried to, to move forward and make a play on that. Just imagine the Browns offense in a similar situation. If they're throwing that ball and Tyron Matthews on that side of the field for the chiefs, what he might do in that moment, because I saw, and I wish I could give credit to the right person on Twitter, but the way they described Matthew in this game, I thought was great that you don't know where he's going to be because on individual plays, he will do a thing he's not supposed to do, but yet your defense never gets burned by it, right? He sort of freelances in a way that is all good, no bad, and you absolutely – that's what the Browns needed here. They needed a freelancer to do something that he's not supposed to do defensively in that moment to come off a guy and go make a play, just as we talked earlier with the Matthew coming up and making the play on the Nick Chubb swing pass. So, you know, all they got to do is get a Tyron Matthew, which is like I, – I say that sarcastically, except, boy, oh, boy, would that not be at the top of the list? Now, maybe it's Grant Delpit. Maybe it's not. But we talked last season. We kind of were interested in them getting a playmaking safety. I mean, that's not an outrageous thing to want a playoff team to target. Hey, you have a lot of other pieces. How about a playmaking safety on the back end? Who's like a wild card that blows stuff up. There are other guys in the league who exist like that. They don't go grow on trees, but I would be thinking that way for a multitude of reasons for the Browns. They have so much in place. That is a luxury they can afford to go after because maybe a guy like that would have made a play here. Yeah, Doug, Doug, it, but to highlight your question, you asked Andrew Barry yesterday about Antoine Winfield Jr., rookie safety, now playing for the Bucks. I could see him making a play in that situation in this exact moment, you know, undercutting a, a weak Travis Kelsey, you know, screen uh, route and uh, making a play and ignoring his rules. Instead, you have a guy like Carl Joseph who, instead of thinking like a, a game changer, thinks like a journeyman who wants to do his job and be a Simon Sound. And here being a Simon Sound gets you beat. And it's one of those, and that is the hardest thing. And I feel at once at some point it was like maybe we were underrating the absence of Grant Delpit. And then it's sort of, I think, all of us who cover the Browns, Mary Kay, Dan, the three of us, we've talked about Grant Delpit a ton in the back half of the year. Nobody who follows Cleveland.com, either the written word or listening to the pods, doesn't understand how important Grant Delpit could have been to this defense. But even as we talk about and Andrew Barry, you know, is saying, hey, you know. Yeah, everybody realizes we leaned offense. The number one move they made on defense was taking Grant Delpit in the second round, and he didn't play a snap. So it's like we can't – they didn't completely ignore defense. It's just their number one move got blown up. It's like if Jack Conklin would have had an injury in camp and never played a snap, and it's like, man, well, their offensive line wasn't as good as it should have been. It's like, yeah, well, they, they signed a right tackle. They didn't play. They did do something, and it just didn't work. But, you, boy – 
that guy in that moment, that guy in that moment, you see how a guy like that can make a difference. We will take a quick break. We'll come back with the second play. That's one play down. (laughs) I don't know how many we got, but we're diving in on another Chiefs play right after this on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, back on Gotta Watch the Tape. Ellis, are we going to the play before? Is that what's next? Yes, we are. All right, we're going going to the drive before. Okay. Henny mania. What are they calling it? Anything can happen. Anything is possible. It is wild for me. I will say, and I know there are fans of both teams that are listening to this. It's like, I mean, I remember Chad Henney in 2007. It was like Chad Henney was going to be this guy who was going to beat Ohio State. And he was like half hurt in his last game and couldn't lift his arm. And I think the, I think Ohio State beat Michigan that day like 14 to three. And they were like trying, he could barely play. And it's like that guy, it's like I have a hard time wrapping my head around it, that it's like that Michigan quarterback, like, 13 years later is now the guy that is doing this to the Browns in the playoffs. It's like the, of all the people, man, I, I can't believe that guy's still around. All right. Henny mania. Oh, well, uh, you have a shirt, Ellis. You have a, a Henny mania shirt. I bet. Working on it. We're merchandising that too. I'll tell you this for all the, the deep diving and, and research we did going into this game. I got to be honest. When Patrick Holmes got hurt, I thought like, Matt Moore was coming in or something. Whoever backed him up last year, I was not ready for any media either. Um, but that's exactly what it turned into. And I'm sticking with my bit here of naming all the all these these uh, play breakdowns. This is uh, Browns nearly make a last stand, nearly. And it, of course, listeners, it ends with the Chad Henney run. But I want to start with how the drive began, setting the scene. The Chiefs had just got the ball back up 22-17. They're starting on their own 28-yard line. The first play is a right run for Daryl Williams. He takes a, a shotgun handoff. And Sheldon Richardson here fights off a block and literally just swallows Williams up with one arm and brings him to the ground. It's a complete one-on-one solo tackle, which is really impressive to see in the trenches like that. They're kind of rare to come by. And I thought perhaps this was a good time to stop and just talk about for a second what Sheldon Richardson's future may be. Um, on the season, he had a PFF grade of 71.1. I think that was in like the 50s, 40s or 50s for um, interior defensive linemen. He had six sacks, 43 pressures. The Browns have about $19 million in cap space going into this offseason, which is 12th most. But Sheldon Richardson is the third or fourth highest paid player on the team. There's no penalty in cutting him. And cutting him before June 1st would save the Browns about $12 million. So, and, and trust me, I, I don't know yet about the free agent market and the, the draft and all these things where the strengths and weaknesses lie. But I just wonder is if this is becomes one of the luxury casualties that this Browns team starts experiencing as a Miles Garrett contract kicks in, you know, down the line as they start considering to pay Denzel Ward and Baker Mayfield. Is he going to be the first casualty of some of these decisions? I would be shocked if they got rid of Sheldon Richardson this offseason, especially with Larry Ogunjobi's future uncertain and the fact that Jordan Elliott didn't exactly set the world on fire in his first season. You do have Andrew Billings, uh, we assume, coming back off the opt-out, but Sheldon Richardson, Sheldon Richardson obviously is your best interior defender and you still have him under contract. So I, I, I don't know. I think they tried so hard to find someone to pair with him that was better than Larry Ogunjobi. You know, Dorsey did that when he was here and they, you know, they drafted Elliot this offseason. So 
to get rid of Richardson now, I think we just kind of go against that whole idea. So I, I think they keep him for, for his final year. I think it's, but I think that the discussion you're having Ellis is the discussion we're going to be having for multiple off seasons. Now with the Browns is you get to these right. guys, if you're not a core player and how many core players can you have? I mean, honestly, four, six, I mean, if you're not a core player and if you're talking core players, you'd have four or six guys ahead of Sheldon Richardson on that list. You're in danger. You're at the very least in danger. And this is also one of the things they do have some room to maneuver, but if they, what if you want them to make a play for a Tyron Matthew type and they spend big money on a playmaking safety, let's say, and then they got to save money somewhere else. Right. I mean, you start moving these pieces around. So I think it's a very interesting conversation and it's one of those things, Scott, like, I think, I think Scott very well is probably right. But on the other hand, it's like you draft Jordan Elliott, you signed Andrew Billings, and I think it's the way it works. You get those guys initially to be good depth behind the expensive guys. So then the next year they become the starters when you can't afford the expensive guys who aren't core players. So I don't know if the presence of Billings and Elliott, you know, if Jordan Elliott had made the all-rookie team, maybe Sheldon Richardson would be out the door. For sure, right? So I don't know. It's it's gonna be fascinating. I think this kind of stuff is fascinating, but there are some hard choices ahead, which we all know. Yeah, and I tend to agree with you, Scott. I think they are gonna to need to bring Sheldon Richardson back. I'd be surprised if he goes. But these things, he when you're looking at offseason rosters and you see such a high number with literally no penalty, it it just is worth mentioning, you know, there's an opportunity there to save a ton of money, but I think his production has, has proven worthwhile on that play alone. So now we're going to get into back to the, the play sheet here. It's a second and eight after Sheldon Richardson's uh, solo tackle. And they actually run sprint out. It's a, it's a s- similar look, a deeper sprint out concept, a sprint right concept um, to Tyree kill. He runs a, a, a deep, uh, it looks like a deep out, but it actually ends up only being a four yard gain. Important to mention, Miles Garrett is not on the field yet for this drive. Uh, he did not play on first or second down. Uh, they had Porter Gustin and Adrian Claiborne out there at the ends. On this play, Andy Reid put Travis Kelsey and Tyree Kill out um, – excuse me, Tyree Kill in the slot, and as I said, motioned him um, for a, a deep out to give them a, a manageable third and four. And I, I, that's just one of those second down plays where you kept people in front of you and, and play for third down. It's the third down play – that I have a feeling we're going to talk a bit about and was the opportunity for the Browns to to get off the field here, aside from the the Henny run, which of course we're going to get to. On this third and four, uh, it's really, first off, good play design. Andy Reid puts Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey to the opposite, um, on the same side of the field, opposite of where the play ends up going. Um, Garrett comes back onto the field now, important to note for this play, a, a third down pass, likely pass situation. And it ends up just being a simple swing pass to the right to Daryl Williams. And he ends up picking up five yards. And this play to me completely embodies, epitomizes the issue with the Browns defense. It's slow foot speed. And I find it fitting for all of the time, all the deep dives it felt like we had Scott doing on the Browns linebackers and how they were performing in coverage this season. I know I wrote as soon as B.J. Goodson signed, I did a film review on what the 49ers did to him in the NFC Championship game when he was a Packer and how they exploited his slow foot speed in the passing game. And again, it seems like it came full circle with the Browns linebacker, who we said was making strides in pass coverage, still being exposed for his lack of lateral quickness which regardless of how well you scheme someone up, 
you can't replace their physical traits. And it showed he lost the foot race to the edge against a running back who, if you Google it, runs four seven. But then Skip Bayless on Twitter said he ran four seven, and Daryl Williams called him out and said no, he runs four six five or like four five four six. So I don't know what his forty time is. All I know is he's the slowest running back on the Chiefs roster, and he made he beat BJ Goodson in a foot race. It's that simple, and it ended up giving them enough for a first down on a play they should, probably should have got off the field on because the coverage behind it's there but the check down is all they needed. And, and you really can see all the things at play here that we've been talking about. Denzel Ward locked up with, with Travis Kelsey. He's following him. So he's not involved in this play. Uh, Ronnie Harrison winds up taking Tyree kill in motion out to the opposite side. And you can, you can see Carl Joseph. They have two safeties. Carl Joseph is leaning towards Tyree kill, which makes sense. So he doesn't really get involved in that play. And then Sandejo is the other safety on this field and he's 30 yards deep. So he's not going to be able to come up and make a play. So you end up in this moment, the two guys who are closest to Williams on this little swing pass are BJ Goodson and Malcolm Smith. And they're not that close and it's just, it's just not going to happen. And it's, you know, I mean, it's again, I, I, you know, we, we've talked about it a lot. Like you said, Ellis, we've been all over this from the beginning. They chose not to invest in linebacker and it caught up to them in their second playoff game. And the last drive of their second playoff game is where having slow underpaid linebackers finally killed them. So I don't know. It's not like they didn't know it. Honestly, it's not, this is not a surprise to Andrew Barry. And I can imagine him sitting in the box going like, okay, <laughs> where the line was, we were fine right till then. So like, you know what? That's a pretty good strategy because if you didn't spend money at tackle and you didn't spend a draft pick at tackle uh, offensively, that would have hurt you long before the second playoff game. Yep. Right. Like they, the way they spent money, this was the line in the sand, but I saw, and I, don't, I can't remember the kid's name. We'll all get to know him. There's like the, the linebacker, I think, from Tulsa, who people think maybe was the best linebacker in college football this year. I've seen him. I saw a mock draft the other day that had him to the Browns at 26. Playmaker, right? Like that's – and that seems to be the next step. So, Scott, I don't know. I mean, Scott, I mean, you and Ellis, nobody under, has understood this more than you two guys. So, I mean, this made total sense, I guess, right? Yeah, and I this play makes me think of the two swing passes the Browns ran. You know, it's it's a speed against them on you know the other side of the ball. You know, yeah. the, the Browns ran it on first and ten and second and eleven or third and eleven. They gained two and four yards on those play. You know, the Chiefs only get five yards here, but that's what they needed. They it just worked out. They knew that they're going to pick up that four yards because they're just faster. And yeah, people have been exploiting the Browns linebackers in this way all season. So it's you know. This is this is the world the Browns lived in this year, and you're right. They do need to address that this offseason. They need to get somebody in the middle of the field who's on the field every down who can make a play like this. And I don't I don't want to belabor this because it's not the refs are out to get us. There is a view of this tackle that makes it look like he got a good spot on this. That BJ Goodson did get there and make maybe that at least should have been a measurement, or maybe if you challenge it and challenge the spot there's a maybe that it was sort of just like, Oh, first down. And it was pretty darn close. So it's not like they didn't get 15 yards out of this. They needed four and they got four and a half probably. But again, that, but which goes back to how close they were. If your linebacker is one step faster, you might tackle him short of the stick. So anyway, for Brown for Browns fans that are 
close to my age and, and younger, this proves the cliche of football being a game of inches to be gospel. I mean, think about the Richard Higgins touchdown ends up being a touchback. And perhaps we do a whole offseason pod on that rule because I'm curious to see how you guys feel about it. Now is not the time. But whether it's that play from Higgins, the, the third and four we just laid out, or the first, fourth, and one that we started with, playoff football, championship football, Super Bowls are about the inches. And that's where the difference comes in in paying at linebacker, not paying at linebacker extending the ball, not extending the ball. That's how this stuff's decided. The next sequence, fourth play of this series, I have down, written in my notes. But after all that, after all that, the Browns are covered. The Browns are covered, and they win these next three reps for the most part. Because remember, the start of this sequence I titled, Browns nearly make a last stand. So they, they, they almost recover here. Starts with a first and 10 run, another shotgun run, this time to the left for two yards, We'll move on to second down, second and eight um, shotgun. They have Kelsey out wide and they motion to um, him and with Joseph to show man coverage. And this play is another one where the chiefs are leaning on something. They, a formation they really like. It's that nub formation where they have all their receivers to one side and they have Kelsey isolated as the tight end. Uh, on a slot tight end, but really he's the, the number one receiver to that side. And it allows him first, it allowed him the Denzel Ward touchdown. Cause it, I, even if it's his own coverage, essentially it's man to man coverage, re- regardless of what you're playing behind it, cover two, cover four, when you're the only guy over there, it turns into man coverage and Kelsey diced up Denzel Ward on that one route. But on this play, the Browns, the Browns win a rep. They win a really important rep and it ends up being a, a Brown sack defensively. This is the play that you're hoping for. We talked all week leading up to this podcast how it just was going to be a moment, a moment where the Browns had to take advantage of the Chiefs making a mistake, the Chiefs not being on their A game, the Chiefs just kind of stubbing their toe, beating themselves, and that's exactly what happened. Carl Joseph, who, again, is not Denzel Ward, is one-on-one with Travis Kelsey, and he wins the rep. Whether it's because Travis Kelsey didn't run the right route, it looked like he wanted – Kelsey just to hitch up right at the the sticks there and Kelsey either runs an out or runs off screen, but regardless, they weren't on the same page. Travis Kelsey doesn't make the play and it results in a miles Garrett sack. And at at the end of the day, that's all you can ask for. Despite everything we just laid out on that, those previous three plays about how slow BJ Goodson is and how they let a four, seven running back beat them in a questionable spot, whatever they sack the chiefs on second and eight to force a third and 14 with a backup safety defending the best tight end in football. They won a rep and got to third and 14. It's where they wanted to be at the start of the game. And they, they had that moment right in front of them on a play that has your best player sacking a backup quarterback and really should have given you all the momentum going forward. And I think it's important to note Ellis, as you said at the start of this on the first down and the second down to start this drive, miles Garrett wasn't in. He was then in, he came in on the passing down and then he stayed in on first down and second down here. So he doesn't destroy his guy, but once Henny double pumps because of the Joseph coverage, miles Garrett is right there. And, and it is unfortunate injuries are part of the game, but when you do think about it, I mean, this drive starts with Adrian Claiborne and Porter Gustin as your two rush ends in a world where you are paying and expecting and counting on it being miles Garrett and Olivier Vernon. 
And so here it comes up, but like, you know, in a world where Miles is not batting, battling an abdominal injury and Olivia Vernon is not out for the season, who knows what first down of this drive would have looked like, right? So I do, injuries are part of the game, but man, the Browns really got hit in some really key spots in a, in a tough way at times. But yes, to your point, Scott, after this, this, and there's still time. There's like two and a half minutes after this play happens. Just like we felt like there was momentum slipping away from the Browns offensively on their drive and your offensive breakdown right here, Scott, it feels like momentum slipping away from Kansas city. Yeah. I'm in, I'm, I'm like hitting a lot of spaces on the story I'm writing at that point And like thinking I'm going to might have to come up with a different way to lead off this thing <laughs> because everything I had written to that point uh, about, you know, missed opportunities. I'm thinking it's not really going to come out, come out right. Uh, yeah. Just rewatching that play. Like as soon as any double pumps, Garrett just pushes his lineman off of him and then he's right there. It's, I don't know if he saw the double pump, but it was like that moment he knew that there was a chance for him to get there and, and he did. And yeah, I think third and 14, I mean, you're, you're liking their chances at this point. This seems, and then what, there's two minutes left and it seems to be setting up for some kind of final drive. All right. Yep. Should we just stop here? <laughs> stop the call, right? Do we not want to live? relive third and 14 because it feels so good right now you guys already know what i'm gonna say too you guys already know what i'm gonna say i wrote about it all week i talked about it at nauseam on the postgame pod i wrote it in my postgame story you guys already know what i'm gonna say we don't have to we can just stop right here you're right doug oh man because that's exactly what it was scott it was momentum built and i I, gotta go back to that second a play i got my formations mixed up on the second a play they're in a condensed set uh two by two twins on both left and right this third and 14 play the Chiefs get back to their bread and butter. Um, they have trips left and Travis Kelsey nubbed right, so he's an isolated tight end, as I explained earlier. Escott's at two minutes, third and 14. The Browns are on the cusp of getting the ball back and completely forgetting about the drive that Scott detailed in part one, which who knows when you guys listen to it, but thank you for listening as we keep <laughs> indulging on this long run of, of breaking these plays down and reliving these moments with y'all. It's third and 14, and <clears throat> the – Chiefs run three deep routes. They send one, they send their number three guy on an over their number one and two guys hitch up. And they also have Travis Kelsey hitch up. So really they have um, all three, they have three receivers on the same plane, but spread out across the sticks for all three being options. And the Browns drop seven, they rush four, and Adrian Claiborne commits the Cardinals sin, which on my last dive, which is going to be a good note to end on after all this misery we're making you guys relive. He did this in the first half and now he did it again here. Adrian Claiborne does exactly what I wrote all week about what you don't do. And if you have access to NFL game pass, I recommend you watch the tight version of this and watch where Adrian Claiborne, how he rushes on this play compared to how miles Garrett does Adrian Claiborne ends like three yards behind Patrick Mahomes, or excuse me, behind Chad Henney. And that's the difference essentially in the game. You are lose your rush lane integrity and the rest is history. Chad Henney made a heck of a play, but it started because for whatever reason, Adrian Claiborne bull rushes and loses contain on a quarterback. And regardless of the athlete it is, he did this against Patrick Mahomes too. So I don't think he did it because it's Chad Henney he did it because it appears that with the game on the line, your instincts take over, they get the best of you and you're looking to end the game. 
when really the goal is to do your job and keep the quarterback in the pocket. So I want to talk a little bit about personnel on this drive. Again, on the rewatch, they played nickel almost the whole game. They really very seldom had three linebackers on the field. But on this snap, Ronnie Harrison is not on the field. They have Joseph and Zendejo as their two deep safeties. They have Mitchell, MJ Stewart, and Denzel Ward as the corners, and they have BJ Goodson and Malcolm Smith at linebacker. On third and 14, why not have Dime here? Why not have six DBs in? Why do you have Smith and Goodson in the game? Why don't you have Ronnie Harrison in for one of those linebackers? And maybe I don't, maybe Ronnie Harrison's pursuit here is better. They're not going to run. I mean, what are you, what is BJ Goodson? Okay, maybe he's out calling the signals, but have Harrison in for Malcolm Smith. I just thought this would be an opportunity. And I, I don't know. I'm not tracking. I, I don't think Ronnie Harrison's hurt at this point or anything. I don't think there's something else keeping him out of the game, but schematically here we are talking about Tyron Matthew wouldn't allow this to happen. The, the, the one safety on the team who has any chance of being a playmaker is not on the field. So I don't know. I just thought they could have gone dime. You know, they're dropping back to pass here, Scott, maybe they could have run a screen or something, but I don't know. Yeah. I think it's weird that that is a good point. I, I like Harrison on the field. Um, better than Goodson when Goodson doesn't come off the field. And then you're looking at Malcolm Smith versus Harrison. And I don't, I mean, Malcolm Smith is your best coverage linebacker. So, I mean, I could see it. I don't know how much that would help. I think the thing that makes this play is I think it's Hardman, his block downfield. Mm-hmm. Uh, once he realizes that Henny is running and that, that buys him uh, an easy 10 yards of real estate there. And then, cause that's really the only Browns defender that had a chance to stop him because none of the guys behind him are going to catch him. And that block pretty much just made it. And by the way, I, we talked about a bad spot earlier. I thought for sure that the refs robbed Henny. I thought he picked it up. Like he totally got it, but then he, they, you know, they marked it like a a yard short and I thought they kind of screwed him there, but you could see on the, on the replay that uh, he actually went down. It was a good spot. And they didn't even take any time to review this. Like I thought that, you know, you know, both teams were going to get a t- like an extra timeout here, essentially, because they were going to stop the game and look what, look at it. They, they just kept on going. I was surprised by that, too. Ellis, when you look at the routes on this, again, they're just running all – is it four verts? I mean, is that just – is there something that a defense should do better in this moment to protect against this? Because it really is remarkable. MJ Stewart finally comes up and makes the hit to force Henny short of the first down. But all you've got is defensive linemen chasing him. It is remarkable how there are no other Browns defenders because, like, Henny kind of comes out and then turns up field. And often when a quarterback sort of starts that turn up field, that's when the secondary, that's when the back seven shows up on a play. It took them forever to show up. Did they defend it wrong, Ellis? What could they have done differently here? Right. So first I want to address the the dime personnel off the top of my head, I just don't remember the Browns playing much football this season, defensive football, without at least two linebackers on the field. So I'm not sure they are just comfortable in that set or they have the uh, capability of deploying that and being comfortable in it, especially with the game on the line. As for this play itself, I think the Chiefs really benefited from having Chad, Chad Henney in the game here for this reason. It goes back to, again, why I'm so disappointed in Adrian Claiborne and the way this team defended the quarterback run this week because it is pretty clear to me that a philosophy of Joe Woods defense, a pillar of this defense going forward is going to be winning up front, winning with your front four, being able to create pressure with four so that you can then drop seven. 
And if you're going to put that much responsibility on your defensive line, then you can't be wrong. You can't be wrong like the way Adrian Claiborne was twice in this game. You can't just ignore your, your contained responsibility and let an a, a unathletic quarterback pick up the biggest yards of both teams' season. So in terms of how it was defended, two things are going on here. I think if Patrick Holmes would have been in the game, the Browns that are in zone coverage, who did a great job, you're right, sitting on all basically those four verticals that turn into three stop routes. They do a great job defending them, but I think had Mahomes been in the game, they're more aware of a possibility of a run and take the threat more seriously and perhaps get there in time. Now Mahomes is faster. Perhaps it's still a bang-bang play. Who knows? But because it's Henny, I don't think you're really thinking run at all. And then when it comes again to defending it, Joe Woods has made a decision to put that responsibility on his defensive lineman and his defensive lineman didn't deliver. It really sounds like what we talked about with Odell Beckham is good. Teams play the deep ball. Donovan Peoples Jones isn't much of a, as much of a threat of Odell Beckham. So it actually opens up the deep ball here. It's Chad Henney's not as much of a threat to run. So it opens up the chance to run. I will say the other part of this is so Damian Williams is wide and then motions back into the backfield. And wouldn't most of the time, wouldn't there be a linebacker that has responsibility on him because he stays in to, to pass protect. And then when he doesn't need to, he leaks out and there's nobody with him. So they are sending all seven defenders drop deep to cover those four routes, the three receivers and Kelsey. Not only is there nobody, because not that you would spot. I mean, again, it's like, oh, you spy Chad Henney on third and 14. I get that. But if you had had a linebacker accounting for the running back there, he would have been at least up closer to the play to maybe get after Henny. Is that a mistake, Ellis? Because you could see when I think Denzel is wide on, on Williams to start. And when Williams motions back in, Kelsey is the only guy out there now. And now Ward and Malcolm Smith, who was originally over Kelsey, both appear to run with Kelsey. And I just, why they didn't have anybody up in the first 15 yards. Nobody in the back seven was within 15 yards of the line of scrimmage. Yep. And it's pretty obvious to me that the Browns overestimated their ability to tackle down in this situation. Like I have, I'm, it, it appears they were told in the huddle, anything short, we can tackle down, defend the sticks, do not let them behind you and defend the sticks. And that's exactly what all seven guys do, which then puts pressure on your front four to contain the quarterback and then your stick defenders to tackle down on a drop off to the running back. I'm confident they tackle Daryl Williams in that situation on a check down, but because of the huge lane that Adrian Claiborne vacates and allows Henny to fill, they're not able to make a play much before the sticks because again, they just weren't expecting it. They're expecting they could have foreseen a check down to Williams before they saw this quarterback run, taking them and essentially ending the game. So Scott, is it a bad play? Like Scott, is it a bad play by the defense or does stuff happen? I'm tempted to say this is a stuff happens play because of who the quarterback was. This really reminds me of the Browns third and 11 play. Same, really the same kind of thing. Everybody's running for their first down marker. You have a long way to go. You have a lot of open field between uh, the ball carrier who ended up for the Browns being Hunt and, and the defenders, but the Chiefs got blocking downfield once Henny took off. Hunt didn't get that. He, he didn't get that kind of help and kind of had to beat people on his own. So, Look, if anybody thought Chad Henney was going to run for 13 yards and to, to help win this game, they're lying. I, 
this is a, this goes in the in the category of stuff happens i think so where do they so everybody's given the, the chiefs credit for going up for it here mj stewart does come up and make the hit a half yard short of the first down if he tackles him three yards short of the first down like where where is the line for because there was a line for Kevin Stefanski right fourth and nine was too much to ask but we all think we all know he would have gone on fourth and three fourth and four I think he might have gone up to like fourth and six or seven right it's just that fourth and nine with the way their passing offense was not really getting much down the field that I think was the line what's the line here for the Chiefs Ellis Man, it's a really tough question. The line with Patrick Mahomes probably is fourth and four, fourth and five. But if you are Andy Reid and you have Chad Henney and you're looking at fourth and four, you can very quickly start to see him talking himself into a conservative decision. I don't think many people would knock him for that. With the way they've been handling the Browns offense, perhaps you're not scared of it. Now you're opening a whole can of worms where it's you know Andy Reid – pre-Patrick Mahomes, you know, his playoff mishaps and his time management. And perhaps Andy Reid's flirting with a lot of old demons if it's not fourth and one. Luckily for them, it was. But, man, I, that is one heck of a what if. Perhaps they go for it and design something more for Travis Kelsey compared to a quick hitter for Tyree Kill. But, wow, I wouldn't want to have been in that situation, and I bet Andy Reid's glad he wasn't either. I do think I think anything more than fourth and two and they would have had to punt because you have to remember it's at midfield. And if they're punting it, they would if they would have called the timeout as the, after the clock kicked down, they could have punted with like one eleven left to play. And then you punt it. It takes a couple seconds. Baker's getting it with like a minute and no timeouts to go the length of the field. Right. So I think they would have done it. Really, I do think in the end, as critical as this play was, the first third down was the bigger deal because now you're in a spot where you have a minute. You have a minute and no timeouts. The other one, they would have had like three minutes and you almost can get like a normal drive. You know what I mean, Scott? That I think when Kevin Stefanski, and I think we all agree that punting on fourth and nine made sense. When you're punting there, knowing you only have one timeout, you're thinking get a stop on the first third down and get the ball back with a manageable amount of time. Yeah, I think obviously that's the that's the plan. Three and out, get the ball back. And But again, even though you got, even though you gave up that first, third down conversion you're you're in this incredible spot at third and 14 where it seems like the odds are totally in your favor and you are going to get the ball back and there's still a reasonable amount of time left at that point to to kind of put something together I mean you need a touchdown but I don't know I I still think that even though they gave up that first one they're they're still in good shape here and I and I because I completely agree with you Scott you're in a perfect situation at second and or excuse me, third and 14 after that eight yard sack. And I understand the notion of things happen. This is football. And it's a strange thing that Chad Henney's in the game, but I just think it's so important to stress the fact of playing disciplined football, regardless of circumstance and understanding what you need to accomplish in order to achieve your goal. If you force Chad Henney to be a pocket quarterback on third and 14, you know what he's probably going to do? He's probably going to throw an interception. He just did on first and 10 on the previous drive. Make him beat you in the pocket. Don't let him become an athlete and bail him out by losing your lane integrity. And again, I said it on the postgame pod, I sound like a broken record, but having him beat you in that way, yes, it's football, stuff happens, but I think it's a fit, complete failure from the unit up front and specifically 
the coaching points of Kiffin and Joe Woods, whether Adrian Claiborne was told these things and ignored them or just got lost in the shuffle. You can't lose that way on third and 14. Make Chad Henney beat you from the pocket because he probably wasn't going to do it. it. Does Olivier Vernon do a better job of, of integrity there, Ellis? For the sake of my argument, I'd have to say yes. I mean, it, it's just hard to know because in that moment, you're talking about guys who are bred to sack the quarterback from peewee football, probably middle school, ninth grade football on. They're that game changer. They're that that moment creator. And when you're facing third and 14, you're only thinking pass. You're thinking go end this game. Hell, you're thinking strip sack. I mean, there's a lot of just disrupting things that can happen there. Does Olivier – hold his lane integrity. I'll say this. I remember last year, it was actually the play that hurt him against Denver. Uh, Philip Lindsay was in wildcat and ran zone read and Olivier Vernon gave up the end and essentially ended the game and was injured on it for not having outside contain. So maybe I just answered your question by saying I'd seen him not do it before, but I think he gets the benefit of the doubt first for just being a better player than Adrian Claiborne being a better athlete and for the way that he was playing leading up to his Achilles injury this season. I think he's just disciplined and forces Henny into a pocket throw there. And it really is kind of remarkable watching it on replay again, Ellis. Not only does Claiborne go to his Claiborne's on the end, he rushes sort of to his outside. Ogan Joby at tackle rushes to his inside and like takes a step that you rarely see a lane that wide. It's, I mean, if you would have, I swear. If it had gone a different way, if you had had a linebacker floating and waiting, it almost looks like they were baiting him into right. running. Right. Yep. Because you, you have a lane there, you have a, a, a blitz there, a zone blitz. It would have been a great call. But instead, I think it's a, just a massive breakdown. Yeah. One, one thing to keep in mind, if Vernon had been in this game, Miles Garrett, is he played all 25 of his snaps from the left side. In this That's a game. great point. And if Vernon is in this game, they might be switching back and forth a little bit more because – when Vernon was out, that's what you saw from Miles Garrett. But with Vernon in the game, they did it, it was Garrett was still kind of leaning more towards the left side this year, but it was he was getting snaps from both sides and, and maybe Garrett's over there uh, on the other side on this play if, if Vernon's out. All right. That's uh that's some big old breakdowns there, people. I think this stuff is interesting. I think to get really detailed on really important plays is a really interesting way to look at football and listen to the offseason. What else are we going to do? So we're not trying to like make you relive uh, a thing that broke your heart, but I think it's like, where can they learn from it? Where can they get better? What sort of is, you know, the chiefs being great. What, what is the Browns letting something slip away? And all of that plays into here. We're going to come back and sort of have final thoughts on the game as a whole. How well did the Browns play? What did we learn? We'll do that next on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, back on Gotta Watch the Tape. And I like to do this sometimes, like talk out the pod on the pod so that people, it's like we're having a podcast meeting on the podcast. We doing one a week, probably, in the offseason. Is that a good rough plan, you think, Scott Nellis? I think so. Oh, we're not going to go up to three a week? What? (laughs) I mean, listen, if if someone told me daily Gotta Watch the Tape, I'd be here. So, but, but I say that as a person who doesn't do any work for it. I just turn on the zoom. Uh, You guys do the research. So, but I think one a week will be a really good opportunity to look back, to look forward, to talk about draft stuff, to talk about roster building, to talk about guys who had good years, who, who didn't have such good years. I think we can analyze games. I think we can analyze 
individual players in a really concrete way. So I think we'll have a good time this offseason. So thanks to everybody who joined us. Again, we started this. Got to watch the tape right here at the beginning of this Brown season. It was a good season to do it. Uh, Ellis, you have sort of a let, – let you kick us off on sort of where you are with your final evaluation of, of really what the Browns did and didn't do in this playoff game. First, let's start defensively. In this game, the Browns held Kansas City to 22 points. They were 2 of 5 in the red zone. They, they missed a, a field goal and extra point. There was a sequence. It was the Chiefs' uh, second field goal. No, excuse me, first field goal of the game after uh, scoring on back-to-back drives. And I thought it was a sequence that I painted a, a, a complete picture of where the Browns, how they grew as a defense. The drive started with the Chiefs just moving the ball downfield real easily, getting chunk plays, 14 yards to Kelsey, 11 yards to Hill. Looked like another touchdown drive, right? Then they have three plays that really go their favor. A bad throw by Mahomes, whatever. Second down, they try an out and up to Tyreek Hill on Denzel Ward. They had been throwing Tyreek Hill short passes for the whole first half. Try him on out and up. Nothing happens. Denzel Ward stays home. They throw it away. On third down, they win a rep and are able to force a field goal. And it's due to a call Joe Woods made by bailing Adrian Claiborne in coverage and rushing one off the opposite end. So a simulated pressure and the chiefs called a screen and Adrian Claiborne dropped right into the screen and blew it up. It was a great play call by Joe Woods. I think it showed what giving Joe Woods athletes and time to grow into his role, what this defense could really be. It was an, a, a, a great call at a great time. And he had the athletes to make the call work by rushing off the edge like that and had a, a, a DN that could make the play. Denzel Ward not getting beat on, Tyree Kill on that double move. Remember, he got beat on a double move in Pittsburgh. It's moments like that where you see true growth happening. And we spent all second half of the season talking about the offense's growth. I think it's important to highlight the defense's growth. And I saw that in this game, despite them not having to face Patrick Mahomes for the final 23 minutes. Offensively, I said a lot of this in the part one of this podcast. And again, we don't I don't know where you're at when you're listening to this. If you're listening to back to back, if you took some days, whatever. Um, we've been sitting here recording for so long. I think Joe Biden's had like three meals in the white house already. <laughs> we, broke, meals and whatnot. <laughs> we broke Scott's computer. Scott's computer was like, this is too much podcasting. I give up. <laughs> yeah. When we started, Joe Biden had just finished getting inaugurated and now I'm pretty sure they're all hanging out comfy in the white house. But anyway, we, we really should have started before noon and then we could say my god that that podcast lasted two presidencies <laughs> <laughs> that's a t-shirt too god yeah. lasted two presidencies my goodness but where to get back to the original thought the offense has hit a point where they're one of the best in football as we said leading into this game however what happened against the chiefs is what i thought would happen against the ravens when they're forced to face physical man coverage teams that stop the play action, don't fall for the trickery, and it's our athletes versus yours who can make plays. It's what happens when you don't have Odell, and it's what happens when uh, you are a young offense that hasn't taken the next step yet, and you're probably not going to take that next step during a given season. You know, give it time. Look at the growth of offenses guys like Sean McVay and Kyle Shanahan have had. Their offensive philosophy remains the same, but stuff they do off those formations and sets – grow and expand and I'm excited to see where year two goes along with the growth I thought the defense really showed in this game a a, a 
and back-to-back weeks, having their way with the Steelers and then keeping a Chiefs offense for the most part in check, aside from, of course, not having Patrick Holmes for 23 minutes, but that's what happened. So a lot to be excited for Browns fans, but when we're breaking down the game versus the season, I can say that this was overall a missed opportunity in the game's sake, but a season as a whole, there were major strides taken on both sides of the ball. And I think there's a lot to be encouraged by. We know about the offense, but this defense playing against some of the best playmakers in football had their moments. Scott Pasco, final thoughts. I do agree that the defense grew and it's important to know what, or to note what Joe Woods accomplished with the fact that he didn't have the horses he wanted to have. And he had guys playing below what they'd shown on the field before holding the chiefs to four field goal drives. I I came away from this game thinking the defense did what they needed to do for the Browns to win. And really the defense has done the defense didn't play well overall, but they did what they needed to do in so many games for this team to win. And a lot of that had to do with turnovers or big sacks or just those, those moments, you know, like the safety against the Colts, just the things that, that the defense had to do to make sure that, that this team won. And this was another one of those games. Now, if Patrick Mahomes isn't hurt, maybe this game is like 33 to 17. But the fact that they did keep them to four field goal attempts, they made three of them. I think that's, that's going out on a good note for this defense. That third and 14 play and fourth and one aside, they, I think, kind of held up their end of the bargain because you had to think if the Browns were going to hold the Chiefs 22 points, there was a good chance they, they were going to win this game. Offensively, you know, I, I looked last – before Kevin Stefanski took over, I looked at play action for the, the Vikings last year. And over the first half of the season, Cousins led the league. He was like 37% of his dropbacks were in play action. Then over the second half of the season, it was down to like 26%. And we saw that kind of play out with the Browns here too. And at some point, they kind of had to change because teams adjusted. And then they got into the postseason. And a lot of things they were able to do during the regular season – didn't work as well, uh, especially in this Chiefs game. So I'm excited to see what Stefanski does from here because we never saw what that Vikings offense looked like under Stefanski in his second year. We're going to get that with the Browns. You know, what do they add to what do they add to their scheme to to avoid having to having to change things like they did this season? You know, to be more consistent in what they're able to do from week one to week whatever. So my I, I said this uh, on the on the TV show with Dave Bacon the other night, and I'm going to repeat it here because I don't know how many people heard it there, but I, I don't want to bother people. I think I probably drove people nuts with my missed opportunity semantics argument at the end. Ellis did. Ellis sent a whole text. Be a Browns tech subscriber. You can see Ellis Williams subtext me in real time. He's sending it to hundreds and hundreds of people. And I texted Ellis because I subscribed to the Browns text. And I said, Ellis, next time, just send it just to me. You don't have to send it to everybody or at least put my name in the text and say, Doug. So here's my point on the missed opportunity thing. And I do, I don't want to go too long on this. I view it like this. Usain Bolt runs a 9.58 meter dash. That's the world record that he holds. The Chiefs are Usain Bolt. But this year they haven't been running the world record. They've been running more like 9.7. They haven't been at their best. They haven't run 9.58. The Browns run like 9.9. The Browns' personal best is not even in the 9-8s. So they get into this game, and the Chiefs run like a 9-8-1. And the Browns run like a 9-8-6. 
So the Chiefs are like quite a bit below the fastest they usually can be. And the Browns are actually like about as fast as they can go. And it's still not enough. That's the way that I view this game because there are so many things here. As much as they, yes, they did like slow the Chiefs down and important things. The Chiefs drives with Mahomes were touchdown, touchdown, field goal forced by the Adrian Claiborne tackle on the screen on the great Joe Woods call on third and 10 that you just mentioned, Ellis. And you mentioned how like one play makes a difference. They got that field goal. And then their last field goal of the half was when they get the ball back after the Higgins fumble and they go in a one and a half minute drill and drive down and get a field goal, right? That if they had more time, they would have gotten a touchdown. Then second half, they come out, Baker throws the pick. They hold Kansas city to a field goal because miles makes a big play and forces pressure on third down on that play. So it's Miles shows up and helps shut down that drive and hold it to a field goal. And the next drive is the play is the drive that Mahomes goes out. So the Mahomes drives are touchdown, touchdown, field goal forced by a great play on third down, end of the half drive, field goal forced by a great play on third down, and then he's out of the game. So like getting Patrick Mahomes out of the game is such a huge edge but it still wasn't enough because all the things that happened, I felt like watching the game. The main point I want to make is this. I thought the Browns did a lot of really good things and they couldn't, I don't know that they could have done more than they did. I honestly don't because yes, they didn't score a touchdown on their last drive. And by then the screen game was sniffed out. Right. And by then Wyatt Teller allowed a pressure that blew up a play, but they had scored touchdowns on the two previous drives. They didn't allow those things to happen. Or if they happened, it didn't derail them. So I'm just giving them so much credit for being down 19-3 and then responding with two touchdown drives that to say, man, why didn't they get the third touchdown drive? They just couldn't. They maxed out getting those two touchdown drives to get close in that moment, the way the game unfolded. So obviously we all saw the same game. It's only viewpoint, but they didn't play perfect. But they had moments where penalties screwed up a drive. The Chiefs had penalties that screwed up a drive. Nick Chubb dropped a throw. Tyreek Hill dropped a crossing route that hit him in his hands. That probably would have been a first down, right? That neither team played perfect, but I do not think the Browns were mistake ridden. I thought they did a lot of good things. They slowed the game down. They didn't have that many possessions. And it almost worked. But I think it was much closer to them losing by 21 than it was to them winning, honestly, because they had to do so much well to put them in position for that. So, of course, if they score on the last drive, a couple better play calls, you block a little better, they march down and win. But, man, I just can't believe they didn't let it get away. Right? I mean, I do – like, there was an opportunity after the Baker pick to open the second half. I thought it was over. Didn't you guys think it was, like, off to the races – way to hang in. And it was almost like borderline hanging in. They only scored three points in the first half. It's 19 to three and they open with a pick and it's like, all right, well, lights out. That's what I thought in that moment. And the fact that that didn't happen is the thing that I'm most impressed with. So I think there's a lot to head into the off season, but I thought they fought their butts off in this game to not let it get away. And it's just semantics. I mean, it's just, I mean, like, yes, you guys agree. You guys agree that at 19 to three and Baker throws a pick, you thought it was over then too, right? I mean, every Browns per every Browns person watching the game was like, well, that's it. So you get credit. So then it's just a matter of how you balance the credit, how you view the miss versus the, you know, whatever. But that's really where I was. I did not think they would do what they did after that. 
Yeah, no, I, I agree with that, Doug, especially with at the point in the game when we thought it was over. To me, the issue is where I started with how this two-part pod began. It's going into the game, you knew 17 points wasn't going to be enough to beat Kansas City. And say what you want to about the Higgins play at the end zone, which gives them another touchdown. It breaks their way. These That's the type of stuff that happens in playoff football. To me, only having 22 carries, rushes total. I know the first half was strange. There's just a point in the game where you either need to, in the second half, lean on that second half running or have that go-to gadget chunk play to spring some momentum. And neither happened. So to me, it's probably – like, I would have been – this game would have made more sense to me had what you suggested occurred. They end up losing by 21 because Patrick Mahomes just throws for 425 and four touchdowns, and that's the game. I didn't see the offense falling this flat. 31st-ranked run defense. The Browns are one of the best red zone offenses in football. They've proven they can get chunk yardage against any defense. They just had their way with the Steelers' offense for the most part, aside from a couple of drives in between there that were three and out. And they just didn't have it. So to me, that's where perhaps I just – when you play this game out, this wasn't the scenario I envisioned where it was their offense that held them back compared to the other side of the ball. Yeah, I totally agree with that. It's like I said, it was the offense, I think, didn't hold up its end. Right. Uh, I think the defense did enough to, to give them a chance. So just, okay, and I don't want to have the same semantic argument, but I just, I just, want, to, I just want to say this. You guys, they're putting their heads down. Why are we going so long? Why is he saying the same things? The game was five days ago. Stop, Doug, just stop. I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping. These were their first six possessions. Field goal, punt, the fumble at the half-yard line, the Baker forced interception, touchdown, touchdown. So their first six drives, three of them are scoring drives. One is a disastrous at the edge of scoring, and then Baker threw, made one bad play and one punt is that not good offense like that's when you guys say you're surprised the offense let them down when i and then and that all leads up to the last drive so let's take the last drive out of it for now they had the game they had the ball down five with the chance to win it and they didn't get it done but before that would you would is that being disappointed the browns offense i'm not disappointed in three scores in six drives and and one that is an inch away from being a score I think that's actually pretty decent in a playoff game. If Kevin Stefanski foresaw this game being only a six and seven possession type of matchup, then the punt on the second drive is inexcusable. You can't just surrender a drive with seven plays and 23 yards. And I get you're waiting. You know, I'm making that decision with the information of the rest of the game unfolding. But to me, that is all right. We didn't get a touchdown on our first drive. If I'm only going to get the ball three times in the first half because of these long drives that I'm predicating my offense around, then one of them has to be a a touchdown. And again, that probably comes in if Higgins doesn't have the the bang-wing play at the end zone there. But you have to be the aggressor in this game, as we noted, going into it. And to me, it just never felt like the Browns were – on that attack and for the uh, and if to talk about the back-to-back touchdowns there also comes a point where you're running out of time and chasing points 
there was a two point decision there that I don't think we've talked about at all that I don't know when is the right time to get into that. But the point being that I just never felt like Kevin Stefanski was pushing that lever, pushing the gear into high to get the Browns rolling that second touchdown that you're talking about, Doug, you know, takes, what was it like 16, 17 plays and took almost like a half the quarter off the clock. Like I understand that about being methodical and Patrick Holmes is over there, but by then you already know that Patrick Holmes isn't coming back. You can get more aggressive and start trying for more possessions because there's not as much to fear offensively. And instead they take eight minutes off the clock and then follow that drive up with seven plays, 12 yards, which got detailed. So for me, it was, they just plateaued and I foresaw this offense having another gear, especially in this type of game. Slowing the game down in in a sense and and limiting the drives. We talked about this before the game that that wasn't necessarily the way to beat the chiefs uh, because they can score so quickly. The fact that the Browns had these long drives and, 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 and ate up time didn't have any bearing on how the chiefs were going to play. The defense is what did that. So the defense held the chiefs to 22 points. And if your scheme on offense only allowed you to have these, you know, this low number of drives and you weren't totally efficient on those, that's, that's on the offense. Right. You know, they, and again, it even beyond that, it, like we've said repeatedly here, it's, it was a struggle. They were constantly in second and long and, 13 third downs and and so I don't think that if, if that was their their plan to limit to, to shorten this game you know so to speak and, and limit the possessions that was limiting their possessions that wasn't really doing anything about the Chiefs because the Chiefs could score quickly and be explosive it was up to the Browns defense to deal with that that's why I think the Browns I think kind of failed in a way on offense and that they did not they didn't make the most of the drives that they had and I don't think it was the right if, – if that was the plan, it wasn't the right plan to, to limit things like that. But if you're holding the ball for eight minutes instead of four minutes, that's four minutes that Patrick Mahomes doesn't have the ball. He needs 20 seconds to score. I mean, they've done it before. Okay. And I will say the, – the, so the punt drive as much – listen, my main point is I feel like the Browns, the way things happened, the Browns would have had to – I thought they played pretty well. And I think they would have had to play like almost perfect to win. And they didn't play almost perfect, but man, it's hard to play almost perfect. The punt drive, the punt drive, they're moving the ball. Baker completes a 17 yard pass to Landry in the middle of the field. And Teller gets called for a hold on the play. Now, instead of they're moving the chains, now they're first and 20. And then they go chub drop, chub drop. And the second drop was going to be a screen that was going to pop. So like, what is that? So like, what is, okay. A killer holding penalty by one the, the best guard in football and two killer drops by the best running back in football. So, like, I don't know what that is. Like, like that's – we talked before about, okay, Chad Henney runs, runs on third and 14. Is that just stuff happens? Is that just stuff happens? Or is that – like, that's not – I don't – that's not a play-calling failure. It's not a – it's not like a, they choked in the moment failure. It's just like why a teller got a penalty and Nick Chubb dropped a couple balls. But also that happens. Listen, last year, Nick Chubb fumbled twice against the Patriots and murdered them. And Freddie Kitchens got fired. Nobody wants to run Nick Chubb out of town. Nick Chubb's awesome. He made killer mistakes in that game. He hadn't fumbled in four years, and he fumbled twice at New England. If he doesn't fumble, they might beat the Patriots. 
Nick Chubb doesn't drop balls all the time. And I know, I think we've talked about before, maybe you should be throwing to Kareem Hunt there or whatever, but you know, it's not like he's a butterfingers exactly, but like stuff, football stuff happens. And so I just think they would have almost had to be perfect. And just the idea of like that, the offense didn't do what it should have done. I, I don't agree with that because to me, that's the punt drive. And then at the end of the game, they had sort of pushed themselves to the max that the Chiefs knew what they were doing. And there's no threat over the top to scare anybody. And they kind of are who they are by that point. So what are you going to do? Maybe run a trick play. I think LSU make a very good point on that. I would love for you to ask Kevin Stefanski the next time we get him. Kevin, you guys had run trick plays, Jarvis throws whatever, to success before. Did you have one holstered for this game? and just not find the right time to call it? Did you almost call it at a moment? Do you, do you wish you would have called it? Because I think that's a very interesting discussion. But in general, I actually thought the offense did do its job for the most part, most of the game. Like I wrote after the game, the, the Chiefs have more room for error than the Browns. So that's basically what this came down to. Because the Chiefs made mistakes too, like you said. And both these teams have won a lot of close games. Browns overcame a lot of errors over the season. But this this game, they didn't have the margin that that the Chiefs had. Yeah, to turn it over twice and punt twice and to still be in this game, it's I think it's why we've talked, as Doug said, over two presidencies over this podcast <laughs> because it is just this was a wild one. It, it is it's a tough one to break down and come to a, a collective agreement on where fault lies because there are so many different what ifs and just things that happen over the course of a divisional round playoff game. And at the end of the day, look, you can see, look at the box score and say, yep, 17 points wasn't going to be enough, but that's why I hope you all spent two hours with us because we broke down how and why the Browns got to where they're at and why at the end of the day, the chiefs just made essentially one more play. And that's what primetime football usually comes down to. At the and I'll, I'll, I'll end with this. And I swear to, I swear this is it. Thanks to everybody who's. I always like to say this at the end of the podcast. It's like, if you are still hearing these words, my God, thank you. Thank you. Because 90% of you have bailed on this podcast long before now. They got there like, oh, Scott Nella said the good stuff. Now it's just Doug talking. I'm out. The Baker Mayfield that is right now, the Baker Mayfield that exists right now, the first year of the, the, the Kevin Stefanski offense, third year in the league, first time in the playoffs. The, the fact that that Baker Mayfield threw that pick to open the second half is not a surprise because this Baker Mayfield is still a work in progress. And to, to think that he's a finished product who would make zero mistakes right in a game like this, I think is too much to ask. Maybe next year's Baker Mayfield doesn't make that throw beginning of the season. Baker Mayfield makes three throws like that in a game like this. So I think that part of it, it's like, you can't make that mistake. That's a killer mistake in the moment. And they live to tell about it, which is a miracle. Mm-hmm. But you also can't be like, how dare Baker Mayfield do that? Because it's like, well, listen, man, he's a third-year quarterback. That's in him, right? He's tamped that down all year. Kevin Stefanski has removed 80% of that instinct, but there's a little bit of it lingering, and Baker's going to feel sick about it all offseason. And then maybe next time they're in the playoffs, he won't make that throw. But I think you have to give leeway right now for that mistake to happen. And frankly, Patrick Mahomes might make a throw like that and make a mistake like that. And then he answers it with not with three 90 yard touchdown passes between his legs. Right. So, or maybe, you know, maybe I'm trying to think maybe Ryan Tannehill doesn't make that throw at this point because he's been in the league for a decade, but that's where I am on a lot of this too. It's you can't expect some people in the moment 
to be something more than who they are because Baker's not a finished product and being not a finished product means every now and then, even though it's against your better instincts, you do something that kind of kills you and you wish you could have it back in a camp. All right. I, I'm not going to end on the last word because I've had too many words. Ellis, you go ahead. And then Scott, you finish us up. Ellis, go ahead. This game, I hope Browns fans were just able to, now that we're a little bit removed to look back and just enjoy it. You went head to head with the defending champions and nearly won it. And it came down to their offense going for it on fourth down, not even allowing Baker Mayfield and Kevin Savancy to get another shot at it. That's remarkable. And it was in Kansas city and the chiefs probably are going to go on and win the super bowl. At least that's, I, I said that before the game, I was like, I'm picking the Browns to win this game, but if the chiefs win, I'm picking them to go to the super bowl. And that's what this feels like now. The Chiefs, they, they were a little slow. They had their rusts, the kind of the things we expected. We didn't anticipate Patrick Holmes not playing the, the final 23 minutes. We didn't, I didn't anticipate the Browns offense having the low points that they did, yet they were in it at the end. And as we've been saying, things come down to a, a last-second play and one of the best players in football, Tyreek Hill, and one of the best play callers the league's ever seen, ended your season. It's a remarkable run. There's a lot more where this will go. There's a lot more to build upon. And we're going to do that all offseason with you guys. So I'm looking forward to it. What a regular season. And we're going to have plenty of time to look back on it as we tread towards the draft and the springtime and into summer. And it'll be training camp before you know it. Yeah, I'll just say this. that This game, this is the price of success. This, You know, the feeling of whatever you're feeling, whether it's accomplishment, whether it's lost opportunity, whatever you're feeling after this game, like this is the price of success. And if you're a Browns fan who's, over 30, you remember it from, you know, from when it happened the last time. And that's, that's just how it's going to be. You, you, you would think going forward, you know, next season, you want to get back to this point and it could end like this again. And it's better than ending on week 17 and the next day trying to figure out who your next coach is going to be progress. Well said succinctly said I'm bad at this succinct part. Okay. Thanks for, I, I like it. I like going long. I I can't help it. I Doug just can do another two hours. Let's just keep going. What's our topic next week? Should we just knock it out now? <laughs> I mean, I can't. I got. I mean, I got so much stuff. I want to. I, I still. I'm holding myself back from saying one more thing. I swear, I have one more thing, but I'm going to stop myself. We'll do it some other time. Uh, great season. I've got to watch the tape. Thanks to everybody who's been a part of it. Thanks to Ellis and Scott for doing all the work they do. Just again, I think you guys have a sense of this. The workload on this podcast is. 48% Ellis, 48% Scott, 4% me. So thanks for everything you guys do. I'm smarter about the Browns because of you two. I know our listeners are smarter about the Browns because of you two. And it makes it more fun when you're smarter because you don't, you can watch it and you can really understand what's happening and why it's happening. And I think with what you guys have done this year, are, there are Browns listeners who are starting to Tony Romo, the Browns games and something's happening. And they're saying, Oh wait, I don't know. I heard those guys talk about that this week. I say, Oh no, no. Well, that's the only the third time. In the, right. That's what you guys are doing for them. So thanks for that. Thanks to you guys for listening. I'm Doug Maurice for Ellis Williams and Scott Pasco. Thanks for diving in on. Gotta watch the tape.